Good afternoon. It is afternoon, technically. It was morning when you got here, and now it's afternoon. So good to see you all here this afternoon. Trust you're doing well. Always good to see you. Um, if you're visiting with us, um, just want to take a minute to share a little bit with you about what's happening at our church right now. If you um, have come in and you've sensed a, maybe a, a certain level of excitement from folks here, um, I, I just want to explain that to you. First of all, um, we are excited about the work that God has been doing, is doing, and is beginning to reveal to us that he's going to do in this community through this church. And, uh, and so like this last summer, we went through the Redemption Story Sermon Series. If you missed that, I encourage you to go to our website to resources, go to Redemption Stories, and just listen to some of the amazing testimonies of the powerful work God is doing in the lives of our people right here, right now. Even today, God is working in amazing ways. He's, he's breaking down hard hearts and he's mending broken hearts all today in, the, in our church and all throughout our services. And we're so excited about that. And as we pray and meet, the more we talk about the future, the more God is revealing uh, his, his amazing plan for this church in this community. As the city of Fort Worth continues to push out west, development is happening. We look at where God has positioned us as a church right here on White Settlement Road uh, to be a beacon of hope uh, to all that is about to happen out here. And so we're excited about that. But second of all, and and, and probably most importantly, we're doubly excited because God is using hypocrites and criminals to accomplish his work. As we just sang, that God is in the business of saving hypocrites and criminals, even ones like me. And as we recognize the amazing work God is doing, we also recognize our unworthiness. I'm just going to let you know that if you're visiting with us today, um, we, are, we are a broken people. God is putting back together. So hopefully you don't expect too much of us. Hopefully you don't expect too much perfection. Uh, and if you came here today and you're visiting with us and you felt like you needed to put on the facade and the church clothes and dust off your church lingo and, and get your act together before you walked in, let me just let you know, you may be at the wrong place. Um, this is a place to come and to be you and to meet God there and allow him to work in you and on you however he sees fit. And so just know that if you are one of those folks who maybe has felt like, you know what, the church is just full of hypocrites. Um, and now I'm at a church that's singing about it. We, we are, we truly are. We, we believe in Jesus. We are imperfect people, but we have been loved by a perfect God. And we're pursuing him with all that we have, but just, just know this, we're making mistakes along the way. We're trusting in his grace on a daily basis. So if that's you and you brought your mess in with you today, you're at the right place. And we're gonna bring our messes together and lay them at the foot of the cross so that Jesus might wash over us fresh and anew with his grace and mercy, amen? All right, so we're gonna be in Acts chapter three this morning. If you wanna turn there in your Bible or get your phone or tablet out and, and make your way to Acts chapter three, if you didn't bring a Bible and you wanna follow along, uh, we do put uh, Bibles underneath the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, I say this almost every week and we mean it. If you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's word. And so we're going to continue in Acts chapter 3 as we go through the book of Acts as a church. We're looking at this beautiful, powerful, unstoppable church, okay? So what we don't mean by that is to say that because we're cool people here at Solid Rock, because we have it all together, we are therefore unstoppable. That phrase applies to the church as a whole as we from over almost 2,000 years ago are witnessing the church launch and go forward, even with imperfections, even with struggles, even amidst persecution and, and corruption. Jesus' church has done exactly what he said it was going to do when he said to Peter and the disciples, 
Upon this truth that I'm the son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out to launch a church that will be unstoppable. You may have noticed when you came in, um, we've changed out our chalkboards in the hallway. Um, those are meant to be interactive. So if you wanna jot something down on one of those, feel free. But you'll notice the one on this side of the hallway has a summarized timeline. And, and it's very summarized, but it starts with what we're reading about in Acts and shows how solid rock is in the lineage of this church that, that Jesus launches through these apostles here in the first century, around 33, 34 AD, that you and I are connected to what's happening here in this church. So as we get ready to open Acts chapter three to verse one, just a little background we need to understand first of all, chapter two began with 120 Christians on the face of the earth, 120. And quickly what happens is the Holy Spirit of God falls on them, fills them with power. Peter stands up and preaches and the church goes to 3,200 at the end of his sermon. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter two, how these 3,200 Christians there in Jerusalem began to rearrange the rhythms of their life, the priorities of their life to become a biblical community, to live in sacrifice and generosity, to make time for one another. And what we saw was this, they were spending time in worship together in the temple, but then they were also spending time throughout the week in the homes together, devoting themselves to the scriptures, to breaking of bread, fellowship, and to praying for one another. And so what we're gonna to see today in Acts chapter three is the first recorded miracle in the church. Now, before Jesus went to the cross, he performed miracles and he even sent his disciples out to perform miracles. But this is the first miracle recorded through the church here in Acts chapter three. So we need to remember what we read last week in chapter two, verse 43 that while they were living and engaged in biblical community, their souls were filled with awe which was a sense of reverent fear and wonder of who God was. And then the end of verse 43 says that many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And so now what's gonna happen in verse one of chapter three, we're gonna read about one of these amazing, powerful signs and wonderful acts of the miraculous power of God working through his followers. Starting in verse one of Acts chapter three. Now, Peter and John, we're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Let's stop for a minute and let's talk through some of what we just read so far. So right now we've got three characters. We've got Peter and John. Who are these guys? These were part of the 12, 12 disciples. Not only that, these two guys were part of the inner three who got to experience some really cool things with Jesus in his ministry. Peter, James, and John were the one who got to experience the transfiguration where for a brief moment of time, Jesus drew away with these three guys and he transfigured into his glory before them from humanity to glory. We call it the transfiguration. And he allowed them to witness and behold his glory. Not only were these three part of the inner circle, we often learn a lot about uh, the, the struggles and the humanity of the disciples through these guys, right? Peter is uh, one of the first ones to open his mouth and, and oftentimes one of the first ones to stick his foot in his mouth. 
over and over again, right? We've mentioned this before. Peter's the one, when Jesus was walking on water, he said, come on, guys, get out of the boat. Peter's the one who got out of the boat, right? Beautiful, glorious moment of faith. Well, what happens just a few steps? He takes his eyes off of Christ, fixes his eyes back on the waves and the storm and the problem of the situation. And what happens? He quickly begins to sink. It was Peter in Matthew 16 who said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right, Peter. I'm gonna build my church on that truth. And the very next story, what happens? Peter's sticking his foot in his mouth and Jesus is rebuking him saying, what, get behind me, Satan. And we know that at the cross, this is the same Peter, right? Who is not only absent from the cross, trying to stay distance himself from Jesus, but he is right all and out denying Jesus saying what? I don't even know that guy. There's no way I'm associated with him. I don't even know who he is. Quit asking me. And three times it's recorded that he did what? He denied Jesus. Now, John, on the other hand, was the disciple in whom Jesus loved. There was this amazing, beautiful relationship. John understood, it seems like, the love of Jesus more than anybody. That's why in his Gospels, he writes a lot about the love of Jesus. And he records a lot of what Jesus taught about love and how Jesus' followers will be identified by the way they love one another. This is all in the Gospel of John. John, we know, was of all the disciples, the one who stayed closest to Jesus through it all. Now, he wasn't right there where he should have been as a faithful follower. He followed, but, but at a distance. That's why in his gospel, the gospel of John, he records more details about the events of Jesus' trials and his beating and his crucifixion than any other because he was there following from a distance. And there in those last few moments before Jesus takes his last breath, we know he got close enough to the cross that Jesus has a conversation with John. And he said, John, see this woman here? Pointing to Mary, he said, I want you to take care of her. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. So we know that John followed at a distance, but he, but he came close enough to hear and to, to speak with Jesus. Interestingly enough, too, if we read the Gospel of John, it was Peter and John who were the first disciples to the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene had been there and she noticed the tomb was empty. So she went running to the disciples and, and I understand this is recorded from John's perspective, but he says that, that Peter and I took off running and, and I outran Peter to the tomb. So maybe there was like a little competitive spirit between these guys as well. What we're gonna see is that um, not only is there this amazing miracle about to be recorded that happens through the church, but these guys are altogether different. They're not the same Peter and John before the cross. Something has changed in them. And we're going to track that together. Now, that's the Peter and John we're talking about. And they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which was about three o'clock in the afternoon. So we're talking about the Jewish temple here. And they had two primary daily times of prayer. One was early on in the morning and one was in the afternoon. They called the evening prayers, about three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the time that they were going to the temple. And this is the Jewish temple. And it wasn't until about 70 AD, about 38 years later, that, that Christianity took a hard separation from, from Judaism because at the destruction of the temple, there was no longer a central location that they would gather together. And that might sound strange to you, but you have to understand, they, they were following in faith this Jesus, Messiah, who was the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecies. So it made complete sense that they would worship together, right? And so oftentimes the disciples are entering into the Jewish temple to worship the one true God. And at the same time, what are they doing? They're preaching Jesus. As the scrolls would be unrolled, and they would read from Isaiah there in the Jewish worship at the end, before they rolled the scrolls up, the, the disciples were there to say, yeah, and he's here. His name's Jesus and he has come and he has fulfilled all of this. Paul, the apostle Paul, oftentimes when he enters into a town, where's the first place he goes? To the Jewish temple or synagogue. 
to show the Jews how the Messiah that they're longing for and waiting for has come in Jesus. And so this is the temple where they're going, the Jewish temple. Now we read that at the, at the, the gate called the beautiful gate, um, historically speaking, we don't know what gate that was because that wasn't a well-known name. So potentially um, Luke, who's writing this, is using a nickname to describe a gate and the way that it looked. We know that the gates of the temple were built out of bronze and oftentimes coated with silver and gold and they truly were ornate and beautiful. Or maybe he's even referring to it symbolically about what's about to take place here. But either way, Luke is writing and he's calling this the beautiful gate. And one of the things we're gonna notice throughout the book of Acts is the detail with which Luke writes. There's a reason for that. Luke was a physician. Now, it doesn't mean that his handwriting was easy to read, but it does mean this. He paid close attention to details. And so as we read the book of Acts, you're going to notice that. But something we need to pay attention to here is the way that Luke is describing this particular individual. This is a man lame from birth, from the perspective of a physician, right? This is a diagnosis. He's describing this man. Now, we'll see this is, um, this is backed up by the people who know this man, have known him since he was a kid, but what Luke is saying is this wasn't a staged, miraculous healing event with some guy that people didn't know. Luke is saying from a physician's perspective, this man was lame. He couldn't walk, right? And that happened from birth, whether he was paralyzed or his ankles and feet didn't work. We're not sure which one. Sounds more like he probably had really weak ankles and feet. Um, but either way, Luke wants us to understand this man was truly truly disabled, and we know that. And he would sit at, daily at the gate, the beautiful gate, and ask for alms. So let's take a moment to talk about that. What are alms? Anybody use that word this week? Alms? How are your alms doing? I don't know what that word means. So in, in Jewish worship, there were different offerings that they would uh, bring to the temple. When it came to financial offerings, which would be in the form of either um, currency, like we saw the, 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 uh, the woman who gave all she had, she gave two coins in the gospels. So we know that they, they took financial collections. If they didn't have money, they would bring like part of their crop or their livestock and they would bring 10%, right? The first fruits, the best of what they had as part of their worship to the temple. And this 10%, this tithe was set apart to uh, pay for ministry, to take care, to make sure the priests all had food to eat and, and everything that took place in the temple was paid for. But in addition to that, they would take an offering or an alms for those who were in need. So when you see the word alms, you need to think about somebody in need. These are those who are stricken with poverty, associated with you know, being unemployed or disabled, or whatever the situation was. Widows, we'll see the widows who come to the, the disciples for food in Acts chapter uh, 6. And, uh, and so that's what was going on here. So outside the temple at the gates, you had folks who, who were in, you know, stricken with poverty or disabled, and they would sit out there and they would beg for the, for, the, for the mercy gift of the alm. And so these worshipers were showing up, oftentimes on a daily basis, they would go in, they would worship God, they would pay their tithes, and if they had any leftover, any sense of generosity, they'd drop a few coins in, right, in the can for the guy. Now, I want you to see verses four and five with me because I think that to fully understand the significance of this story, we've got to understand the heart of God and what takes place in, in verse four and five. If we're not careful, we'll completely miss it. So Luke describes with great detail what takes place in verse four and five. He says this. 
and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and then said, look at us. And he, being the man who was lame since birth, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, this sounds like just a general description, right? But Luke wants to paint a picture that we would pay close attention to. I don't know what interactions you um, have had with those who either don't have a home, those who are maybe begging for money, who have a sign, or just verbally asking for financial help. Um, But something you'll notice that um, if you stop to talk with somebody is that oftentimes there's a lot of embarrassment and, and shame associated with that. And oftentimes there's a, there's, a, there's a real lack of eye contact. And so we don't fully know the heart of this man and what was going on, but we do know this, he wasn't looking at these guys. And so Peter stopped and before he really addressed the man, he said, hey, wait, 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 I need you to look at me. And Luke says, and when he said that, the man fixed his gaze on Peter and John. And this is what I want you to see is that Peter and John wanted this man to see that they saw him. Now, why is that important? What is incredibly important to understand the heart of God. We know from the book of Exodus that it's fully within the goodness of God to allow his people to stay in a hard situation for a season, right, before he rescues them. This is the book of Exodus. It's the story of God's people. They're in bondage and slavery, working really hard labor. God steps in and rescues, but it's fully within the goodness of his character to leave them there for a season. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, verse 7, though, we get this view of the heart of a father as God speaks through Moses to his people. And the Lord says to them in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Now think about that. I see your suffering. I see it. And I need you to know that I see your suffering. Not only that, he goes on and says what? I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. I, uh, I learned a really important lesson um, prompted by the Holy Spirit in an experience um, when I was traveling for, um, for seminary. And um, I did some traveling back and forth to seminary, I took classes, or in the Seattle area, I took classes there. And, um, and so there's, Seattle's a little different. And a lot of West Coast, East Coast cities are different from what we would find here in Fort Worth. So um, we encounter folks who don't have homes or folks who are maybe in need or begging for money sometimes here in Fort Worth, but for the most part, the way the city is set up because of like day resource center and places to get help, right? It's kind of an isolated area of Fort Worth where you primarily find folks who are in a situation like this man. But in in cities like Seattle, I mean, right, they live all over the place. And so you might be just in any city park and there are folks set up in tents and they live there in that park. And that's just the way their city runs things. And so um, we did a lot of interacting with people in Seattle, which meant we interacted with a lot of folks who, um, who were living on the streets, who didn't have homes, jobs, and you know, asking for help, financial help, and that sort of thing. And, and this one particular experience is permanently engraved in my mind. It was prompted by the Holy Spirit of God before I even tell this story. Don't, don't listen to this story and think, Jason, you're just a really um, awesome dude. Um, This was prompted by the Holy Spirit because I tend to be the person who approaches people in need with skepticism, confessing that. I'm not saying it's right. That's just my nature. So I have to fight through that and I have to pray when I see somebody. God, give me discernment. 
should I, do I need to help this person financially? I don't know how you handle it, but that's what I do. God, give me discernment. Don't, don't let me be controlled by my doubts here if I need to help this person. And so in this particular situation, we were, it was about 7.30 a.m. We were headed to class with one of my classmates and we stopped at a grocery store to grab some snacks for the day. Um, and so we pulled into the parking lot. It was early in the morning, nice, cool, crisp morning. Uh, pulled into the parking spot and there was a guy walking towards the front of the store and he had the sign under his arm. And so, you know, just drawing some safe assumptions. This guy's probably, it looks like he um, lives on the streets or at least doesn't have a job and needs some money. And so I just began praying immediately. God, let me know, give me discernment right now on whether or not I should help this guy because he's walking towards my car, right? The conversation is about to go down and I, would just, I just need to know, what would you have me do here? And so as I was praying for this guy and I was, my prayer was, God, do I give him money or not? Um, I heard the Holy Spirit of God say to me, ask his name. And so I, I kind of fought through that for a minute and the guy with me, you know, we were just standing there and, and, and this guy was kind of giving us a spiel and while he's talking, I'm, I'm praying, but God, tell me, should I help him financially or not? And God didn't answer that prayer. God said to me again, ask his name. Because I will never forget this, this moment in my life when, I, when he got done, I said, sir, may I ask what your name is? And, and he, his lip began to quiver and his, he had a tear in his eye. I, I don't know how long it had been since this man said his name out loud. Since anybody stopped to just say, hey, who are you? What is your name? I see you. And like it went from, he had his sign, he was just kind of, you know, kind of looking down, telling us what he needed to all of a sudden he was just locked in. His gaze was on us and we were talking to one another. And we went on to, to help him and to let him know why we were helping him because Jesus had been good to us. And so we wanted to be good to him and, and just share that gift with him. And so we, you know, we pointed it to the gospel, but just the power of that moment, realizing that people had come, people had gone without seeing this man. I think this is what Luke is trying to describe here for us in verse four and five. Peter and John, before they began to interact with this guy, they wanted this guy to look at them and see that they saw him, not his situation. And we're gonna see how that impacts what they do now is they make eye contact with this man. Peter responds in verse six, I have no silver and gold. Now, for all we know, Peter's being truthful here, right? The chapter before this, all the disciples and all the believers were selling all their stuff and helping people. So there's a good chance Peter's broke right now, right? So this is probably true. Now, I don't know about you, but in these situations, I try not to make eye contact, especially if I don't have money, right? You're sitting in at a red light and there's a line of cars and maybe, right, the guy, the guy or the woman or the couple is approaching your car. And if you're not desiring to give, the last thing you want them to do is make eye contact with you. Right, there's that walk of, that moment of shame. So here Peter and John are, they don't have money to give this guy, but they want him to see that they see him. Silver and gold, we don't have, but what I have, I'll give to you. And here's what he says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse seven. And Peter, he, Peter, took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. This is from the perspective of a physician. Immediately. And leaping up, he stood 
began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, what we're gonna find out in verse 16 is this, this person, what, what the root and the source of his healing was his faith in Jesus. He wasn't just listening to Peter, he was listening to what Peter said. And so this person becomes a Christ follower. So started out with surface level needs of the moment, right? And what Peter and John said, hey, we can't help you with the need of the moment, but what we have is actually better than that. Rather than addressing your temporary situation, we can offer something that will fix your permanent struggles. Now, here's what we need to understand about that. So this man, for a long time, probably since a little kiddo, had been carried to the gates of the temple to beg. And probably when he was a kid, he brought in considerably um, a larger amount of money, right? He had the, the cute factor going on, which brought on more sympathy and more compassion, right? When you see that, you're more prone to give. There was probably a time where with a collection of alms, he could bring in more money than he needed for the day. And oftentimes parents or caregivers would use kids to make money. You see this still today, and it's probably happening here in the United States. You see it in third world countries where the kiddos with their cute factor, how can you say no to them? But see, those days had long since passed for this guy. He was a grown man now. And so it was probably customary that some people would just pass him up. And his hope was to make enough money through begging for the day to make it through that day. A very momentary solution. Now, for all of his life, the, the Hebrew people, the Jews who worshiped in this temple had been meeting that need, right? How do we know? Because he's still alive. They had been meeting his momentary daily needs. What we're gonna learn in the New Testament is this. There's a significant difference between the way that the Jews worshiped met temporary needs versus the way that when we worship Christ, he meets the eternal needs of our life. I'm gonna give you an example. Um, Hebrews talks about this a lot, the contrast between simply worshiping as a Jew versus worshiping as a Jew who has trusted in Jesus. Um, the first four verses of Hebrews 10, matter of fact, gives us a, a glimpse into, into how the Hebrews would worship the one true God, but the way they went about it only brought healing for the moment. It only brought temporary solutions to their temporary problems. In the first four verses of Hebrews 10, we'll put this on the screen. Verse 1 talking about the Old Testament, says this, for since the law, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of, instead of the true form of these realities. So what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is Jesus standing between your Old and New Testament and that the whole Old Testament, there's a shadow of Jesus, there's glimpses of Jesus and that in the Old Testament, we're just seeing a shadow of the good things to come. So when you see glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament, it's supposed to create this sense of expectation and excitement. Something good is coming. But more specifically, look at what the author of Hebrews is gonna call us to look at. It can never, what's the it? The, the worship in the temple that these Hebrews were experiencing. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So for those who had been walking by this man day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, bringing their sacrifices to the temple, what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is that what they were offering in terms of sacrifice wasn't doing anything to heal their real problems. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, otherwise, 
would they not have ceased to offer? Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins? But in the sacrifices there, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So for the Hebrew worshipers, they understood this. In order to take away sins, there has to be bloodshed. The problem was they were counting on the wrong blood. And even in this situation, the Hebrew worshipers were still counting on the blood of goats and bulls to take away their sins. Year after year, they would come to the temple to worship, offer sacrifices. And maybe for a brief moment, they felt relief. Maybe for a brief moment, they felt a sense of forgiveness and shame is taken away. But as soon as they left the temple, right, the sin of their hearts began to well up. Before you know it, they're in another robust dialogue with their spouse and they're sinning again. Because why? The blood of goats and bulls doesn't fix anything. In the same way, if Peter and John had simply dropped some coins in the bucket, it wouldn't have fixed anything. It would have only met this man's temporary struggles. You see that? So what Peter and John are doing is offering something far better something that addresses this man's true struggle, his eternal struggle. Now, before we move on from here and go, oh, perfect, as Christians, we don't have to give to the poor then. We can just throw tracks at people, right? We can just say, Jesus loves you and keep on driving. That's not at all what the word of God is saying here. Matter of fact, James chapter two is gonna lay it out for us pretty harshly. Listen to the words of James in James chapter 2, 15 and 16, here's what he says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that is needed for the body, what good is that? That is not a true expression of faith, right? So this mindset that as a Christian, I don't have to give money to everybody. I just got to tell you about Jesus is not at all what we're being told to do here. Right, so this is not, instead of tipping your waiter, leave a track, Christianity, okay? It's not at all what's happening here. If that's your mindset, let's talk afterwards, okay? Please don't do that. Please don't. Well, I'm not gonna tip, I'm not, here's my tip for you, Jesus loves me. That's awesome, but like, they're there serving you and waiting on you, tip them, <laughs> and then tell them about Jesus, right? That's what we're seeing here. And so even this man's healing of his physical body is just a temporary solution, isn't it? I mean, there's no guarantee that he's not gonna trip and fall and sprain an ankle or break a leg or have an accident and be paralyzed again. This is just the healing of his body is still a temporary fix for this man. He still has to die physically. So ultimately, what are we getting at here? We see this down in verse 16, Acts 3, 16. Look at this. And this is so powerful. We've been singing about it today. Ken has been praying about it today. The power of Jesus' name. That's why when we end our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name. Because Peter hasn't laid out this long sermon for this guy, has he? He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, be healed, stand up and rise. And look at what verse 16 says about that mentioning of the name of Jesus. And his name, the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, to be more specific, by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
This is Peter explaining to the crowd what's taking place. Why does he need to do that? Because as soon as this man runs into the temple, leaping and dancing and kind of distracting everybody, they know this guy. This is the beggar. And, and this isn't a hoax. We've known this guy since he was a little kid. We've been footing the bill for his food. What's going on here? So Peter says, I'll tell you what's going on. By the power of the name of Jesus. Oh, more specific than that, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man has been healed. You see, rather than meeting his temporary need, these two apostles address this man's long-term need and ultimately his eternal need by leading him to Christ. Now, is there still an obligation to make sure this guy has food for the night? Absolutely. Do we always get to check credentials and do a background check and make sure that what's written on the sign is legit? No. I encourage you to pray for discernment. And if you're not sure, err on the side of grace and let God deal with it, right? I mean, I, I've heard, I, I have the inner battle myself. I don't wanna perpetuate drug use. I don't wanna perpetuate, you know, a lifestyle. I get all that. But at the end of the day, if you're not sure, my encouragement to you, you do whatever you, you feel led to do, is err on the side of grace. Because at the end of the day, James said, if your faith just says to the person, hey, good luck with that, and then walks away, James will say, whoa, 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 tap the brakes here. We need to talk about your salvation because what good is that faith? But at the end of the day, ultimately what we're after is what? To see God powerfully move and meet eternal needs. Now here's where this comes home for us. Jesus didn't die on the cross simply to make sure you eat every day. God providing food for you is really just an overflow, a small dripping drop in the bucket of his goodness and grace, okay? That's not ultimately what the cross was about. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you wealthy, maybe despite some of the messages you hear in the church today. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you popular or give you tons of friends or the automobile you've always dreamed about or the lifestyle you've always dreamed about or the house in the neighborhood you've always dreamed about. Okay? He didn't die on the cross for those things. He didn't die on the cross to make you religious. Plenty of religion on, going on on the earth before Jesus came and died on the cross. He died on the cross. Hear me. He died on the cross to make you new. He didn't die on the cross to meet your temporary needs. Jesus meeting your temporary needs is just an overflow of his goodness. He died on the cross to make you new. In the example we see in the first miracle, right? If these guys had stopped short of just throwing money in the, in the right, they would, what good would that have been? If it had just been a physical healing, right? What do we do there when God says, hey, I'm just not gonna heal right now. In my goodness and in my wisdom, I'm gonna leave you in your struggle for a season. Because see, ultimately Jesus has died to meet our eternal need. I wanna talk for just a minute about what that means for you and I on a daily basis. Being made new in Christ is not a one-time event. We kind of muddy the water sometimes in the church. When we pinpoint your day of salvation, we map it out, we date it, we timestamp it, we give you a new Bible, and we say, just focus on this day and everything will be fine. But what happens the next day? You still need mercy and grace and forgiveness, don't you? Because even in God making all things new, right, when I believe in Jesus at that first moment, I'm still left with a sin struggle 
immersed in a world of sin struggle, right? And I need a day by day, glory by glory, prayer by prayer, struggle by victory, newness to God's grace in my life. Let's just talk, let's break life apart for a minute and talk about that. How about our marriages? Anybody have a, a robust dialogue with your significant other in the last seven days, AKA argument? To where if we played back the videotape on the screen, you would slide down in your chair in embarrassment and shame. Anybody? Anybody hurt somebody that you love with your words? Yeah. What we don't need is for our wives. We don't need our wives to have better attitudes or for our husband to quit embarrassing us in public. You know what we need? We need to be made new. You don't need another book on marriage. What you need is the grace of God. Because see, our sinful injuries wound and there's no 12-step program that can fix the wounds in the lives of those you love. You need grace. You need something that can touch the wound and heal, right? You need the grace of God fresh and new every day. If you're not married and you're thinking about being married, you need to hear that. <laughs> you need to hear it. Do your best to love your spouse well, but know what to do with your sin and mistake because they're gonna happen. You've gotta bring them to the foot of the cross and you need to be made new on a daily basis in your marriages. Can I get an amen from a Christian couple in the room? Okay. Okay? If you're not married, you just heard the testimony. Hey, listen, how about parenting? Anybody need to be made new in parenting? Oh my gosh, that's riddled with mistakes, isn't it? Mistakes that we can't undo. Right? We say things that create wounds that we don't have the ability to undo. We can apologize all day long. We can try to make up for it, but let's just be honest. We've all been kids once, right? You can't make up for those kind of wounds. We need the grace of God. We need to be made new in our parenting every day, don't we? Think about it. I mean, there are those brief moments like that two and a half minute section of your last week where you were on top of things and you were doing it and you're thinking, man, we should write a parenting book and you high five your significant other and you're like, yes, this is awesome. And then what do you do in the next moment? You sin against your children. You act out in anger. You begin to parent out of selfishness. You begin to, right? Try to micromanage your kids and now the next thing you know, you're sinning again. You can't undo that. You need the grace of God to undo that. It's only the new mercies that come on a daily basis as Jesus is making us new that can fix and correct that. And I would say this, and what we see probably in this story more than anything has to do with your identity, okay? Your identity has been under assault since the day you were born. Very subtle, but if you'll think about it for a minute, you'll agree with me. This world has been lying to you about who you are since you were born. Some of you, unfortunately, that voice came first through maybe your parents or your caregivers who said things to you like you'll never amount to anything. You're hopeless, you're worthless. But if you didn't hear it there, you heard it pretty quickly as soon as you started school, didn't you? If it wasn't the kids on your street, it was the kids in your class who begin to say things to you, assaulting your identity, trying to talk you into believing that you are worthless, that you were not loved or wanted or liked. And if, if it didn't happen there, as soon as you started dating, right? So on and so forth. 
You hear it from our media, it's so subtle, isn't it, ladies? A media that says to you, you're not worth anything unless you look like this. The Photoshop version of this, right? Aren't, aren't you told that lie? You're not valued, not worth anything in our culture and society unless you can turn a man's head. That's how we sell stuff, isn't it? I'm not making this stuff up. Your identity has been under assault since the day you were born. Men, I hope to see you all at men's ministry. Jesus is correcting our false ideas day by day, moment by moment. Every time we open the word together, Jesus is restoring our false sense of identity. You're submerged in a world that has lied to you. Lied to you. That won't tell you the truth about who you are. And so like this guy, right? Who, who had lost sight of who he was, who had begun to associate his own identity with his disabilities, his inabilities, and what people thought about him. Can you imagine? Every time he asked for, for an alm, for an offering, he, in his mind, he's playing, right? The voices in his head of things that people have said to him. He's playing in his mind that w- what he thinks you're thinking of him. His identity was under assault. I love how Peter and John stop and they say, hey, stop, whoa, whoa, look at us. And I want you to see us looking at you. We don't see you as a disability. We don't see you as a, as a problem. We see you. Now listen, um, I don't know everybody's story, but I know enough about you to know this. Not only has your identity been under assault, you've been wounded. There are people in this room who have been wounded. Um, some of you, um, it's more subtle maybe by either what your parents said or what they didn't say. Maybe that's how you've been wounded or maybe just the absence of a parent. Others of you have been wounded more deeply and significantly than that. And your identity has been assaulted. Somebody has maybe abused you physically. Maybe it was a parent or a caregiver. Maybe you can never live up to their expectations and they let you know it. Anytime you made them uncomfortable, they lashed out and they physically abused you. And that impacts the way you see yourself. And we know this tragic statistic. There's a good chance there's a great deal of folks in this room today who've been sexually abused. And you've been wounded and your identity has been assaulted. And and maybe you, like this guy in the story, have a hard time making eye contact with people because you're afraid that people will see those things, those wounds. You associate who you are with what's been done to you, what's happened to you. Listen to me, okay? I want everybody in the room to listen. Jesus did not die to make you comfortable. He died to make you new. He died to take the mess that has been and turn it into something incredibly beautiful. God the Father is not embarrassed by what you've done or what's been done to you. He's not afraid to make eye contact with you. God the Father is saying to you, I love you. I know you don't feel like it, but I love you. I know you're afraid that if you will just be you, that people won't want you, I want you. I know that you're afraid if people know your story or your history, your past, people will say, I don't wanna be around you. God says to you, hey, I wanna be around you. And you need to hear that today. If you're here today, and first of all, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand This is what moves our hearts to joy as Christ's followers. God the Father has come to hypocrites and criminals like us, and he has said, I'm not embarrassed of your sin and I'm not embarrassed of your suffering. I see you and I wanna be your dad. 
I don't, I don't care how many times you've been rejected by this world, but I, I wanna be your dad and I wanna reassure you who you are. You're my son, you're my daughter. And if you're here today, maybe you're not a Christian and you know it. You've just been kicking the tires on Christianity. You've still got some doubts you're wrestling with. Hey, you're free to wrestle with those doubts today in this room, okay? And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you don't know it. What do I mean by that? Maybe you've been relying on being a good person as the foundation of your Christianity. Maybe you've been relying on church attendance or church clothes or church lingo or having your radio station dialed into KLTY or just being good, right? And maybe for the first time you're hearing, oh wait, those things don't make me a Christian. I got good news for you, they don't, they don't. Here's how you become a Christian. Here's how you accept the invitation of the Father. As we just saw in this example, we trust in the name of Jesus. That seems too simple, I know. Why? Because God knew he was dealing with morons like me. He had to make it incredibly simple. But he also did it in such a way where there's no room for me to boast or brag. The only thing I can do is give glory to God. Isn't he good? He saved me even one like me. And I want you to know that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't have to have all the answers figured out. Bring your doubts to the cross, bring your mess to the cross, bring your false identity to the cross and lay them down. And by faith say today, I choose to believe in Jesus. And at that moment, God will begin to make all things new for you. And maybe if you're here today like me and you've been a Christian for a number of years, maybe you're still prone to gravitate towards false identities Right, So maybe you're still prone to forget that, that Jesus didn't die to fix your, your, right, your life and give you the right neighborhood. And maybe you've kind of began to drift towards those shallow waters and today would be a day you say, you know what, I just need to repent of that. I need to get my, eye back on, my eyes back on Jesus. I need to once again, total surrender, lay down my life and say, here, Jesus, here I am. And let me, I'm gonna pray for you as well this morning that you would respond, okay? Let's invite uh, the worship team, if you guys wanna come back up and uh, begin to lead us in worship. Let's pray together this morning. Um, I, wanna, I wanna lead you in prayer, if you'd allow me that honor. Um, first of all, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're still not quite sure what you need to do, um, let me just encourage you. Um, it's, it's very simple. It's simply, uh, it's simply coming to God in faith you don't even have to have the right words. Simply coming to God and saying, I believe in Jesus. If that's you, um, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and you're welcome to pray these words with me, but I want you to understand unless you mean them and believe them, they're just words. But if you truly are ready to become a Christian, to begin this amazing work where God makes all things new, healing, wounds, mending brokenness and restoring hope. I'm gonna encourage you to pray with me now by simply saying, God, today I choose to believe in Jesus. And God, even though I still have questions and at times I still have doubts, today I choose to lay those doubts down and to simply trust in Jesus. God, today I wanna to trust in the perfect life that Jesus lived on my behalf. Today I wanna to trust in the sacrificial 
death and the victorious resurrection of the cross. God, I'm ready for you to make all things new in my life. Now, if you pray that prayer or one like it in your own heart, I want to let you know something. God has begun to work in you. You're now a Christian. And as a first response, I encourage you to share that with somebody. Before the sun goes down today, make a phone call, have a conversation, just let somebody know, hey, today I became a Christian by trusting in Jesus. And if you'd like for somebody to talk with you right now and pray with you right now, our prayer partners are gonna be in the back of the room. They'll have lanyards on that say prayer partner and they'll be honored to talk with you and pray with you this morning. And as we stand to sing in a minute, if you're ready like this man who was healed in the scriptures to stand to your feet, to leap and to worship. I'm gonna invite you to do that. But if you're you're just still praying and working through some things, feel free to stay seated as well. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for stirring our hearts through what Jesus has done for us. Father, now we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us to respond in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.